I'm Kieran. And I'm Eve. This is Kitchen Table Cult. We're two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Eve. Hi, Kieran. How's it going? It's good. It's good. It's hot in Berlin. Um, it's not as hot as Greece, so I'm trying not to complain too much. Kieran is generally suffering from Central Europe, not having air conditioning still, I see. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It wouldn't be bad if it wasn't sticky. It's just that it's mm. humid. So anyway, well, I'm fine. It's fine. It's summer. This is the coldest summer of the rest of my life. So yeah, I'm just like coming from Northern Virginia. I don't have a lot of sympathy for this all, but you're coming from San Francisco. So I understand that this is a... It's still Jump. an adjustment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Enough of to chat about the weather. We've got some. We've got somebody um, here waiting to introduce herself. This is going to be a fun one, guys. Uh, Sarah, who Hi. are you, and what did you do recently? <laughs> so um, I'm Sarah Stancorb. I'm a reporter, usually a religion reporter, but I do branch out, and I just published my first book. Disobedient Women, How a Small Group of Faithful Women Exposed Abuse, Brought Down Powerful Pastors, and Ignited an Evangelical Reckoning, which is an incredibly long subtitle. <laughs> yeah, it is. Disobedient Women. We'll disobedient <laughs> Women. Wow. Okay. Well, congratulations. Huge achievement. Just having a book out, period. And you want to give our audience a little bit more context on you so that they know their audio isn't glitching here? Yeah, sure. So <laughs> um, I think what you're asking is for me to talk a little bit about my vocal issues. Um, and just from the beginning, I think it's good to tell people I have something called spasmodic dysphonia. So if any of you grew up listening to NPR and Diane Reem, that's what I have going on here. And we can talk a bit about what that fits into my own faith journey later, if you want. But yeah. uh, it's just how I sound. And I I will say it took a while to get used to sort of owning it. But in its own way, I think as a reporter, it strangely helped me. Um, it's taught me a lot about the value of listening closely to people. And I think that's fed into my approach to others. Yeah, I can, I can definitely imagine how that would have a positive impact on mm -hmm. the listening side of this. Thanks for explaining that. I just wanted to, you know, get that out at the top. And yeah, yeah. yeah love to like get into how that in plays into your faith journey. You talk about it in the book, but uh, we can do some spoilers here. Yeah, sure. So um, I was a teenager. Well, let me back up. So I was raised a Presbyterian and a Methodist, very middle of the road. My which parents, which flavor Presbyterian? Oh, sorry, Presbyterian <laughs> USA. So oh. the the middle of the road Presbyterian, not the edge of the road Presbyterian, um, and. My mom didn't especially care what I believed, so I would go to the library and just sit in the religion stacks, 
and read about Hinduism and read about like I read books by young at a really young age. I just was incredibly curious until high school when um a few of my friends became very evangelical and I sort of peer pressured my way into that world. And uh, it eventually I got this idea that faith had to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was at college, I had this worldview that was much more restrictive. So at the same time, I was taking my Bible class and reading the actual whole Bible and reading it in context and reading historical documents. At the same time, um, stuff with my vocal cords also came up. I've been praying and praying for God to make my voice quote-unquote normal. And that's when I got a diagnosis and there was a treatment, which seemed promising and worse for a lot of people. And um, it's an injection of Botox into your overactive vocal cords. For me, that made me mute for a month at a time. So I was this kid who had gotten mixed up in a more restrictive religious worldview and literally had no voice. I just, I just, I'm imagining what a mindfuck that would be with all of the like signs from God kinds of teachings that you would probably be experiencing in that community. Yeah, yeah, that's a good term for what I was experiencing. But like a lot of kids or young adults, I really, I thought if I if I keep trying that part of me that I thought was broken, like I didn't have language for disability then. Mm -hmm. I thought, fix me, fix me, God, fix me. And so I just kept going back for these injections with the same result and really just silenced whatever voice I did have. Mm-hmm. And I think later, years later, you know, after I gave up on these injections and realized, you know, speaking with the voice you have, even if it shakes, as the saying goes, is better than not. It also, I think, made me sensitive or at least empathetic to people in situations where their voices were taken away or lost. And and how much courage it takes to really find find an authentic version of your voice and speak up. So that's somehow uh, those factors (laughs) led me to being a religion reporter and learning a whole lot more about a form of faith that I just sort of bumped into. And just bumping into it, it was enough to send me reeling for a very mm-hmm. long time, personally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought the way you spoke about that in your book was very powerful because it is true. Like a lot of people just sort of like, they don't, necessarily live lives that are as entrenched in the movement as like my parents or Eve's family or like, but everyone, most people have like brushed up against it somehow, somewhere in their life. And I don't think a lot of people understand like how quickly and how damaging like 
that can be even just like a brief sort of like, you know, moment with it is like, oh, that was that was messy. Mm -hmm. It can send you into a real tailspin real fast. Yeah. And I think especially with this book, there was a commonality among many people that growing up and then growing into their form of faith, they really wanted to be good. Mm-hmm. And within evangelicalism, those good, bad, right, wrong, those absolutes are so firm. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to dedicate yourself to that goodness, there are so many different ways you can twist yourself up to try yeah. to conform and fit into what you're told is the right way. Um, and that also can cause a whole lot of damage. Mm-hmm. I think just personality wise, like those of us who end up out are the ones who have that inclination the most strongly. And we parse through the theology and like figure out what's wrong and what's inconsistent and we leave. But like that impulse is still so ingrained in a lot of us. And that's the hardest thing I think in terms of like quote unquote deconstruction to (laughs) unlearn is that, that fundamentalist like streak (laughs) within regardless of like what it is that you're being fundamentalist about, but just the impulse to like have that, rigidity and impose it on everybody else Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on on the optimistic side and I think you're right but also I think people who are public about deconstructing often are not they're doing so to try to reach and help other people so I think there's still that sense of a moral imperative Mm -hmm. even even Mm -hmm. when it costs you personally which, I mean, that's also what, what you were taught. Um, you're just an acting head for the opposite purpose yeah. of how it was presented. Yeah. I love it when people are able to, like, get to a place in therapy and deconstruction where they're able to, like, maintain that, like, impulse to participate in community and that mutuality kind of sense and giving back and also are much more flexible <laughs> absolutes <laughs> yes yes it's such it's such a learning curve it's such like like the first kind of like big realization that you have when you're leaving or at least one of the bigger realizations that I had when I was leaving like the Christianity that I knew and was told was like the right one which was like fringe even for fringe Christians like my parents had their own brand that was like off of the deep end of the deep end it was ridiculous so like one of my big realizations was realizing that like the mentality the like very rigid the narrow the black and white kind of fundamentalist mentality is not tied specifically to a religion Mm. like you can have this mentality in other religions outside of religion completely like in just like it's just like a thing that Mm -hmm. you can just have and you have to like cognitively like figure out okay maybe things aren't quite as rigid as like my mind wants them to be because it it, if everything is one or the other then decisions are easy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so like it makes sense as a coping mechanism 
to think that way. But it's very suffocating when you try to like live your full like human spectrum life with just this very narrow limiting like worldview regardless of like where it comes from. And I was so upset when I realized it wasn't just like tied to my parents' religion. I was like, God damn it. Now I have to <laughs> I have to figure this out with like normal people. <laughs> yeah, I, so, oh, I have a funny, funny story maybe I'll appreciate. So my mother who made me go to church every single Sunday, um, I told her back when I was like, you know, in my phase of hanging out with my friends from this new Bible study, this new church, I told her I had been saved because I was coached that you need to tell people. And my mother just sort of made a face. <laughs> and that was that. At least she wanted no part in saying anything else about it. <laughs> then years later, after I had this crisis of faith, and I was kind of tortured about it because I didn't know anyone who had done this. I mean, I, the internet was still very young. Um, the, the blogs, the things didn't exist in my world mm-hmm. at that time. So I came home and told my mom, well, mom, I actually, I, 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 think, I think I don't want to go to church anymore. And she looked me square in the eye and said, good, I never believed any of it anyway. And that was <laughs> it. She quit that day. She quit going to church. She just thought it was good for me and, you know, something to do on the weekend. Um, and then after that, we would be at a funeral or something where someone was waxing on theologically. And she'd like side eye me and whisper things about how she didn't believe it. And I just wonder how much and for how long was she just holding all of this in? Because <laughs> right. she, she didn't have social permission to discuss what was on her mind. So that's that's my um, admitting my loss of faith to my family story. <laughs> yeah, as soon as, as, soon as you, you realize like you're in this together, it's a whole lot easier to snark about it. Yes, yeah. It's yeah. so fun. So I, I want to kind of ask how you talk about like the pieces that you wrote along the way to writing this book, but I want to like mm-hmm. ask about like what, the origin story for this book particularly is like why did you feel like it was important that you wrote this and how did how did it come to fruition because I can imagine this would get something like this would get a lot of rejections of oh this is so niche like Mm. you know yeah talk to me about about how it came to be so I I think the my own era of the rejections came earlier in terms of pitching magazine stories. Um, But I think I've been fortunate to find along the way one good receptive editor at a publication and then a year later find the next story I felt like I needed to report on, cast a bit of a net and then find one editor willing to go, you know, go through the legal process. Like there's often a very lengthy legal process mm-hmm. with these stories and trust my reporting enough that we get there. The book, um, I, I think probably it was a mix of a couple of things. 
I've noticed many of these popular podcasts kind of trying to figure out in our shows, t- trying to talk through, like, what happened really in Mars Hill? Um, and <laughs> places, like, places like that. And it really started to, to irritate me because the way the story was told, it was as if by a whole cloth, all of a sudden, all of these bad things were obvious to everyone. And years of work put online to expose the harm just kept getting erased. And usually the people who have been doing that labor were women from inside this movement who have been trained to well trained that they needed to submit and keep their mouth shut in church and then they got online and there was a lot to come out with these stories and then the very people who cared or claimed to care about the abuse still kept neglecting to mention their work mm-hmm. so i was just getting very irritated about that and then a, a very classic story of like movement to organized like a grassroots organized movement transition yeah. gap that happens. Yes. So, and I was turning 40 uh, back during lockdown. So I did Zooms with some friends and a woman I knew from a nonprofit I worked at uh, briefly called Hard Hatted Women. It's the Women's Workforce Development Org. She said, like, I know you've always wanted to write a book. What, what would you write if you could write anything? And I just bubbled over talking about these people I've been studying for years. And she said, well, why don't you try to write that book? And I mean, it was, um, it was pretty obvious that's the direction I should go. But with this, with this um, proposal, I actually got an interest from three publishers. Wow. So I think the the if I had pitched it back when I first started reporting on these stories a decade ago, definitely it would have been crickets. This is this isn't real. But by the time I pitched the book, people were aware of Christian nationalism. They were starting to hear the words dominion in a new way. The reality of just feminism and the need for feminism within the church like there, there was a lot that aligned when I pitched this book so um fortunately I got the chance to write it yeah that's great good timing goes a long long way uh-huh. um was the title always disobedient women or yes wow. nice yeah yeah uh, um the subtitle I think just kept growing. <laughs> a lot of uh, keywords just jammed in there, but they managed to get it all on the cover. So <laughs> amazing! Yeah, that's that's impressive. Yeah, so I, I guess from like a a craft perspective. You said you said before we were recording that like forty thousand words mm-hmm. got cut mm-hmm. at some point. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that like didn't make it in that you wish maybe had, or like mm-hmm. you're okay with not making it in because of X Y Z reason? Yeah. So I think 
part of trimming was also a big reorganization of the whole book. My initial draft, I wanted it to feel like the internet. So I wanted people to like, <laughs> bounce over here and then discover someone and loop back. It was too confusing. Like There are way too many people in this book as it is in a fairly chronological clustered by ideas of order. So a lot of it was just sticking the pieces together in a more sensible way, cut out pieces. I did have a larger section on, um, I had a little bit that I kept in. I went to the great homeschool convention and there was a lengthy scene about that. Um, I visited Focus on the Family and had a bit of a ridiculous incident there. <laughs> that, um, so I, I'll tell you that story. Yes. Um, yeah, do, please. <laughs> so I, I had read on the website that you, there's something about the radio show. So I assumed that was a live taping, and I could, you know, they, they're always broadcasting, just sit in a little room and watch. So I walked in, a woman with no children in the middle of the day. So already I was different from every mm-hmm. other woman there with seven children following her For around. Th- those who don't know, Focus on the Family kind of like has a little bit of a like a kid's playhouse mm-hmm. tourist attraction situation. So if you're visiting, it's usually like families on vacation going to go see the adventures and Odyssey stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. So what I ended up signing up for, they have a fake radio booth where children, not usually women on their own, can mm-hmm. go record an episode of like, Adventures in Odyssey. So they treated me kind of as this you know, interesting adult and watched me through. They were very careful with me. They took good care of me. They gave me a script to read. I played a child who learned an important lesson about obedience. They started with, you know, just testing the audio. How old are you? I'm 41. And, but reading that script and basically, you know, propaganda for children about strict obedience to what adults tell you. That was a scene that may have added something if I'd been able to keep it in. But at the same time, that's it, it's, it's a long enough book. <laughs> you cram in so much. Um, I understand, like... Yeah, that would have been a fun breather, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I this book is so thorough, and you fit so much into it. Like this book needs to live on my bookshelf with my copy of Jesus and John Wayne as like a resource book. Like that's that's the level of reporting that has gone into this, and it is it is very good. Um, and now I'm I'm blanking on where my question was because ADHD brain. beyond the when is this getting to Germany question yes, beyond yeah my like my biggest <laughs> question is I cannot order a physical copy in Germany. <gasps> what? Yeah. So. Um, 
Oh no! I yeah. have no idea. But, oh, that's an interesting. So when is it? Yes. Shame. <laughs> it it doesn't exist in Europe. When when fix? Uh, okay. That's that's my only note about the book. Is <laughs> the hard copy. I had to actually had to use. Um, so I got an audible audible version and i had to use a vpn to listen to it because it was like what? we can't play it here and i'm like that's rude that's so rude. that's that's that my is. note on the book is um it should be expanded to europe okay uh, i'll let them know <laughs> they, maybe, they make sure people in america buy it buy right. <laughs> there'll be a european launch later it's fine <laughs> other questions we had were like what surprised you in the process of reporting this? I know you've been like covering this beat for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I imagine that a lot of the things that like would surprise most outsiders weren't super surprising to you. But like, was there anything that like really like caught you off guard, took your breath away as you were like digging into it? So I think definitely. I hadn't done a lot of reporting on Sovereign Grace Ministries, which <laughs> people may be familiar with Joshua Harris. He wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Oh, sorry. I grew up in Sovereign Grace Ministries. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you know darn well. Uh, um, a little bit about him and a little bit about this, yes. Yeah. So I was... It was interesting once I started talking to people, and definitely not all the people went on the record, but the very consistent stories people had about um, controls on their behavior and the pressure. So the um, these corrections, people would be given corrections which were understood as like a, a graceful thing to do to help a brother or sister along in their journey um and they can be small it might be you know uh, dear maybe you need to button up your short of one more button or it could be something much more severe but and, that, and just yes yeah, so people know what what um, this looks like a little bit just and then i'll yeah let you go keep going but so if if you saw the shiny happy people spanking demonstration scene mm-hmm. imagine that like conversation of like here's what you did wrong and you're thanking the person for telling you what you did wrong and mm-hmm. like that's that's what the adult version of this looks like in the in sovereign grace ministries mm-hmm. it's a outgrowth of the shepherding movement which is a group in florida in the 70s or something but yeah, it, and it was like an encouragement or some mm-hmm. other euphemism for mm-hmm. for this kind of correctional behavior. Yes, yes. So people in this environment, and very frequently, not only were they members of the church, maybe their kids went to the church school, um, maybe, well, definitely they were in care groups together. Often geographically, they even clustered where they lived. So mm-hmm. this is like wall to wall, the whole way around you are people from your church mm-hmm. who are passing judgment on you um, for your own good, of course. But Always. that that feeling of pressure to conform, I think, 
that was that was informative to me for later understanding when there were situations of abuse within the church and, and to have a pastor who's you know much higher up the ranks give me advice that that pressure that already existed and that respect you automatically have for your pastor that helped me to understand why if a pastor said no don't report to the police or if you already had um or if it was a case of domestic violence within the home say that the father went to jail but then the pastor advised, well, you, you need to bring him back. He needs to be the head of the family. Mm-hmm. How people could go along with that because the, the controls on their behavior were already so tight. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think that that was um, a very big deal for me to understand just that how those day-to-day um those day-to-day experiences could add up to make it easy to gloss over pretty awful abuse. Yeah, it's one of the hardest things to get people to understand. I'm really excited for Shannon Bond Harris. Her Uh memoir is coming out at time of recording um, in two weeks. And she gets into this really, really well. She depicts how this felt in maybe the clearest way I've ever seen someone like kind of replicate it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for outsiders. Yeah. Yeah. I just finished it's coffee a couple of hours ago and it's really, it's beautifully done because it's so, it's so um, vulnerable, Mm -hmm. which it, I think that's a big piece of this. People, mm-hmm. when you're talking about spirituality, it's so intimate to who a person is. And when that's exploited and when that's altered by outside forces, that's a lot, it's a lot to recover from. And she balances explaining where she came from and what the experience was like for her. But also showing you can get out you can heal mm-hmm. it's really well done how has the reception to the book been for you so it's been weirdly positive i um <laughs> up until yesterday yesterday was different i'll explain that in a moment oh wow do tell <laughs> Uh, so, for the, by and large, it's the people who've been tagging me online. They're sort of going through chapter by chapter and just telling me what they think um, and how it reflects what they experienced. So, as someone trying to report reality that's satisfying, um, I've had two mm-hmm. in person events that um, have been really moving. Um, at the first one, I had the executive director from a local survivor survey nonprofit women helping women read the excerpt. Um, and I'm trying to bring in other people for these events just to, I think, show the, the number of voices the book represents. But being in a room with people who haven't lived like this and seeing the wheels turn and seeing 
a group of people in the audience with their jaws wide open and astounded that this is this is real and kind of bring them along and explaining how you get there. That's been great. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, an excerpt uh, published with Elle magazine online. Congrats. Thank you. So that, that was thanks to an editor of mine from one of the first rates in this book. But the, the emails from that, because the excerpt came from the intro, so it talked about my own loss of faith. So mm-hmm. I just got a wave of emails from men quoting the Bible at me. Of course. <laughs> very, very concerned about my soul. But then later, well, and then one woman who said something blaming me for the destruction of society. So that was <laughs> more oh, of a bring that one so out. It's always a good sign when you get those, you know, you're doing something right. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that's more like the typical response to mm-hmm. these sorts of stories. It's been quiet. But then later in the day, I heard from two different men, one who used to hold rather patriarchal views, and he wrote about how much better his life is now, oh. that he's kind of expanded his worldview. He belongs to a church with female ministers and female bishops. And so he's doing better. And then another one wrote to me about his mother. And he said she was a bit of a powerhouse, maybe a disobedient woman herself. And was her, her main act of faith was helping other people. But from a young age, and I hope I get this verbatim, but she taught him, you must find a way to live free in an unfree church. Mm. And <laughs> I thought that, I, I said, I, I'm going to post that online. Like that. <laughs> nice. That's nice. So oh, for the most part, it's been um, a warm reception nice. with a bit, of, a bit of noise yesterday. But um, I think... I think it's landing with the people who need to read it mm-hmm. so far. Yeah. That's amazing. That's so great. Like it was, it's a weird feeling reading like your own history sort of like mm-hmm. back to you. Cause I was part of homeschoolers anonymous and through mm-hmm. all of the things. And I thought you handled the complexity of all of those stories really well. Because it is it is something that hits home for a lot of us, especially those of us who've like been doing the work and we're part of those communities and lost those communities and lost people in those communities while still mm-hmm. like, you know, reaching back and helping other people out. And so I thought the way that you one, you you did mention that there, you know, there is conflict in mm-hmm. people who leave and in organizing and in helping each other out. And you handled it so well that it really, it was very healing to read, to just Mm -hmm. see that balanced and to see that sort of like reflected back as like a lot of us have in the last decade worked through our trauma and gone to therapy and are now like clearer on the other side. (laughs) But there was a lot of mess along the way. But there was a lot of mess along the way. And I feel like a tendency in a lot of people when they're writing about things like this is to either like not acknowledge it and pretend it's always like, 
good or to like really get into it and like sort of like put a lot of salt in those wounds and you didn't do like that you you handled it well in a way that i feel presented like the realities and the complexities of leaving mm-hmm. just incredibly well and in a way that like one was not re-traumatizing and two like mm-hmm. helps people understand that like there is a lot of pain involved in existing and getting yourself out and getting other people out and like that is worth sitting with and Mm -hmm. worth like healing from and taking the time to like do that even though you're doing all of the other really good work as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I think if I hadn't been following some people's stories for so many years I might not have understood both the the sacrifice that people were making. Um, I mean, it's not like you, you all were being paid big money. Um, I want to show your thoroughness because I know plenty of reporters that went to homeschoolers anonymous for primary source documentation. You all knew your stuff, knew it better than anyone. But at the same time, I also, just by reporting over the years and sources stay in touch with me, I understood what a lot that was because it wasn't just work. It was mm-hmm. the, the people you leaned on when you needed someone to lead on the most. And I think there's a tenderness to that that if I didn't include it, it wouldn't have been an it wouldn't have been an accurate story for mm-hmm. sure. And if I tried to make it all seem positive, that also wouldn't be true. There's a cost. There's a cost for doing this work. And especially when one, you're young, like you don't know how to pay your rent yet. And you're right. <laughs> trying to topple a massive movement. That's yeah. a lot. It's a lot to be doing. Um, and it's it's so hard. And then the people you're interacting with, they haven't processed, they haven't had therapy, they can't afford therapy. They, there's just it's so much all at once. And also because of the spiritual abuse, we got taught to have eroded boundaries. And so we're bringing those eroded boundaries into these really vulnerable, like movement-based spaces. And the foundation for that is both like remarkably vulnerable in like really good ways and also really like dangerous for sustained growth Mm -hmm. for the movement. It just becomes so messy so fast. Yeah, and I, it's in some ways it felt like an adopted family. Yes. And family in the good way and the bad way. <laughs> yeah, the same yep. the same boundary issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that, that was something Emily Joy Allison brought up that you know the that's the aim of like you know people who are hurt, hurt other people and folks were for a while they're bleeding all over each other because you've got all the trauma you're still trying to find words for it you also have the eroded boundaries and there's a thread where evangelicalism is such a celebrity machine Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like the, the bit of authority that these pastors have is largely based on charisma and celebrity. And growing up in that culture, the value that people are given by being a leading voice, by getting attention, I think that also it complexifies things. Mm-hmm. And it adds for the opportunity for jealousy and all sorts of other messy emotions. So it's that that it was so functional for so long is really a testament to a lot of people just ordering through. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really a remarkable thing. Yeah. It's it's part of why I'm so like delighted that CRAG still exists, like because mm-hmm. it came out of that same movement out of that same time, and like somehow we were able to get enough therapy <laughs> and like have balance with like real outside jobs and like friendships outside of the community that we were able to like stabilize and keep it alive. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, that was something we were very very intentional about when we started because we saw like we knew we knew what happened when we got a bunch of us traumatized babies in a room we're like we need like that's it's great it's cathartic but that's not what you need to pass legislation we need like something that is sustainable so we like like the first we're co-workers not a support group (laughs) right the first thing whenever i like onboarded a volunteer or anyone is i'm like self-care is essential. Your mental health matters more than the work. The work will be here tomorrow. If Mm. you are like in a traumatized space, if you are not feeling it today, take a break, take a week, take whatever time you need and come back when you feel like emotionally grounded and ready because the work will still be here. Mm -hmm. But it's more important that you're here. And I think that's why CRHE has like survived so much is because we don't, we're not trying to be a support group. Uh, like first and we like making sure that everyone else has support systems in place and Mm -hmm. that they're taking care of themselves first when we're like doing our organizing which is something i'm very proud of because i was (laughs) i was i was the big like energy force behind making that part of our like ingrained culture is like (laughs) we we take this seriously Mm -hmm. the pisces comes in and is like (laughs) self-care first but we're gonna do this now this way or else (laughs) The only problem is that I have trouble making sure that rule applies to me. Like that's where it's where I get in trouble. I'm like, well, I'll make sure everyone else is doing fine, but I don't have to be doing fine. That's that's bad. That's I've learned. This is why you have a therapist. (laughs) This is why I have a therapist. All that said, I really appreciate that. Yeah, the nuance that you got into without getting into the weeds and getting lost in the details. Yeah, and it, I am clearly someone who enjoys sitting in the weeds. So, um, like we were saying before we started recording, like every reported line of this for the fat version was footnoted to something. I kept having to expand my Google Drive because I just save everything. Just so I make sure, one, that I'm being accurate, but also my sources, it's always a risk. And I want to make sure I don't screw up something that will jeopardize their credibility. So I took that responsibility incredibly seriously. Uh, The 
lawyer, the part of the legal team of the lawyer assigned to the book said I'm the most neurotic writer she's worked with, which <laughs> on the scale of, of writers is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost offended on your behalf. No, it was. I was. I felt like no, I really did it because I just. I really wanted to make sure I didn't mess up. And this book is full of very sensitive material, mm-hmm. and a lot of the, a good portion includes convictions and confessions. So yeah. we're safe on that front. But there are also people with, there's one side of the story, and then I need to include the accused if they'll speak to me, mm-hmm. or at least if their you know, defenders are um, deputized to speak mm-hmm. on their behalf. I have to include as much as I can. And I, I need to give a full story here. And, and really for the survivor's sake, too, because if I didn't include the pushback, Mm-hmm. that wouldn't that wouldn't be a full story mm-hmm. i think like literally the only thing that like i i had a like fact check footnote on was the homeschooling numbers statistics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which like your source is good but your source's source is not solid because mm-hmm. homeschoolers don't self-report consistently yes. and so we don't yeah. actually know how many homeschoolers mm-hmm. exist in the u.s and of what percentage of demographics those are so like that's literally it <laughs> so good job <laughs> and i'm i'm listening to the audiobook now which i like waited to do oh i don't know why but i actually heard that yesterday and i thought mm, i should have put a note there that i mean it was in the section where i talked about how uh, there's so much resistance and you know prevention of laws to allow for the reporting yeah but mm-hmm. i should have drilled that down to say, I mean, these are the numbers that exist. Good luck. <laughs> right. It's, 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 a, it's a very like tiny personal vendetta against like people relying on p- folks like Brian Ray's mm-hmm. quote unquote mm-hmm. studies to make sure that like yeah, the, the, the data that we have is interesting, but the data that we have is not representative. Mm-hmm. And we would love to change that. <laughs> yes. Please, it would make our lives so much easier. Uh, yeah, but that's just that's just how that world works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciated you like getting into that a little bit too. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, you just covered like you literally you covered so much. Like, I I I knew I knew to expect some things. I knew to expect the church me too like bit Mm -hmm. i knew that like purity culture and homeschooling were going to be involved i didn't expect the sgm deep dive i didn't expect how how much you got into gen j that was refreshing that was so Mm -hmm. nice yeah the sgm deep dive was nice for me yeah (laughs) i enjoyed that yeah (laughs) there was just there is just so much you really did such a good job tying all of the pieces like our podcast exists to tie these pieces together. And so it's nice mm-hmm. to see a book also do the tying of the pieces together. It's like, oh, oh. yes, yeah, see? <laughs> see, these are all connected. It's mm-hmm. not just us. Um, yeah, yeah. One, one thing I had not anticipated was putting so much of myself in this book. So when I was going to ask about it, that. Yeah. Yeah. When I pitched it, 
the idea I was like a little bit about losing my faith. But it just so happened that while I was, you know, going through all of my reporting and all the research I had in writing the book, um, my father and mother both got very sick. Uh, and we realized both had dementia, and it really turned my life completely upside down. My father was an alcoholic, and an, I guess an active alcoholic, so one way of putting it. Mm. When I was a kid, practicing alcoholic. <laughs> yes, practicing. He got sober when I was 21, ironically, but he never, he, he had this anger that never went away. So once I became responsible for their day-to-day survival, because of his version of dementia, he would call and scream and then forget he had screamed and call and scream. And so because when I was a kid, I was just so afraid of him Mm -hmm. and afraid of his voice that having this year and then he ended up getting cancer and he died, like there was a lot happening personally. And I realized one, like my my own situation, as hard as it was, it also gave me new insights into the people I reported on. Um, I'm not sure I could have kept it out of the book anyway. It was sort of like splitting out of my it's head. Huge, yeah, yeah, yeah it was yeah. a huge thing to have happen. Yeah, but I think it was as important to include because. I realized what I had grown up with as much as it had long-term consequences for me, it was different than what my sources experienced. And I wanted, if I had my story in there, for it to bring people in in a way that hadn't existed in these worlds. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people grew up with some kind of abuse in their families. But not everyone experiences spiritual abuse. I didn't believe my father was sanctioned by God to be the head of the family. I didn't think he was my godly authority. I didn't think God wanted him to behave the way that he did. Mm -hmm. But my sources, many of them had that experience, whether it was their father, their pastor, or the, the church, the institution itself. And that's so much more complicated Mm -hmm. and so it's this layer that as hard as it was for me even as an adult to deal with it's so much more difficult and I hope by getting that piece in there I was able to explain to people who maybe haven't been inside this world that it is it is different there's enough similarity that hopefully you can understand but also see that there's there's a bit there's a bit you don't you've never fully experienced but at least here try to try to learn about it Mm -hmm. yeah i think it was a valuable thread to carry all the way through two questions you live in ohio are you doing more personal like in-person events that listeners could come find you at I have no idea. So <laughs> at this point, um, I'm sort of waiting for people to say, hey, I want you to come here. There will be an, a pastor I know, an American Baptist pastor, is planning an ecumenical event 
locally here, so Cincinnati area, and it's looking like he his church may be flying in one of the sources wow. from okay. the book because he actually was one of the like beta readers for the book, and he thinks it's important for him and for his church to show respect and really elevate. Uh, one of the women in the book so once that's the details are announced that'll be out there but <laughs> that'll likely be in November but I'm I'm willing to go plenty of places I want to make sure people are aware of the folks in this book there is a book club guide I'm going to make sure that's more uh, easily available but if you are doing book clubs I'll zoom in or if it's not too far, maybe I'll go. I I want to hear people talking about all of this. And you're on Twitter and you have a website and people can reach out to you through those things for this. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Yep. My next question was, what are you working on next, if it's not too soon to ask? <laughs> so I've pitched a book idea to my editor for this book. And I can say there seems to be interest but I don't know anything definite yet, so I can't say. But um, if they let me keep the title, it's just as good. The title is just as, just as good. So. Awesome. Very yeah. exciting. Thank you so much for chatting with us about the book. As soon as I started reading it, I was like, we have to get Sarah on the podcast. We have, This has to happen. <laughs> it needs to happen. Yeah, I got the way through, and I emailed or I texted Karen and I was like, we are doing this book. Look at this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, I really, I really appreciate it. And just getting to talk to two people who've been so important to this movement. It's, it means a lot to me to be here. So thank you. I really um, appreciate the, the care that you have brought to the subject. Yes. Literally, I have goosebumps. It has been lovely talking to you. And the book was just is just so powerful. Go get the book if you haven't gotten the book, unless you live in Europe, in which case get a VPN and download it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I have. Well, and a radio station in Spain contacted me and they put it on their website nice so, nice okay like, how how spain how are they getting the book we'll figure this out yes i'll investigate this further this has been great thank you everyone for listening we'll see you next time Thanks. bye 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 You've been listening to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Our music is from the track Janet by the Bend the Heavens on their album Stenazzo. Our producer is Dave the Great. Our podcast is made possible by Patreon donations from listeners like you. To support us and join our community on Slack, check out patreon.com slash kitchen table cult pod. Thanks for listening.